You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, we are igniting the imagination of leaders through conversations with the four recipients of the 2022 Tom Locke Innovative Leader Award. These spiritual entrepreneurs are pushing the margins of what it means to practice faith and build community in today's world with their bold vision for the world God imagines. For more information, visit wesleyaninvestive.org and click Locke Award. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood. Welcome to Igniting Imagination. My co-host for this season is Matt Russell. Hey, Matt. Hey, Lisa. How are you? Great. Great. Great to be with you. <laughs> you so I want to tell you all a little bit about my friend, Matt. He is an academic, an activist, a pastor, professor, and teacher. He's the executive director of Iconoclast Artists, a community of young artists that provides support for hundreds of underserved students in schools and juvenile detention centers, and Project Curate a nonprofit educational and social enterprise incubator that seeks to build bridges across cultural, economic, religious, and racial divides in Houston. Matt is on staff at Chapelwood United Methodist Church in Houston, Texas. He is a 2021 Locke Innovative Leader Award recipient and a dear friend and colleague. Thanks for podcasting with me, Matt. Oh, Lisa, it's such an honor to to be here and to be in conversation and relationship with you and the uh, Wesley Investive and TMF. Well, you are a treasure and it's so much fun to get to do this together. So thanks. It's a blast. Hey, listeners, if this is your first time with us, um, this season we're having conversation with our four Lock Innovative Leader Mm -hmm. Award recipients for 2022. Let me give you a little background on the award. You know, we all know that the religious landscape is changing. We experience it. We feel it. There is so much we could say about that. One of the things we're seeing is the emergence of non-traditional, innovative faith communities, which are helping people find belonging and meaning and purpose and, and helping people be formed spiritually. So the aim of the Locke Award is to shine a bright light on these innovators and spiritual entrepreneurs and their ministry to network and support these courageous leaders who are making a positive impact and are giving shape to the new emerging church landscape. Mm. The award includes a cash prize, as well as an invitation to participate in a cohort with the other award recipients. So Matt, will you tell us a little bit about your experience as a a lock leader so far? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. It's been really probably the most surprising, satisfying, and amazing experience of this this last season of my life oh, for a couple nice. of different reasons. Uh, one, it, it feels as if in the cohort that has been created that I found real sibling relationships and ways mm-hmm. of talking and congruent struggles and all those kinds of things that have been really helpful. As we all know that often in the work that we do both um, inside the church and linking the church to the world that God loves can often feel as if it could be isolating at times. Mm-hmm. And so the cohort has been one, a place to say, oh, me too, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then also there's just some there's just some wicked smart folks <laughs> doing nice. some like really risk-taking, I, mean, I think stuff that just makes Jesus super happy. And, uh, and so I'm just like, oh, okay. And it, it really, it encourages and presses me forward in it. So it's been great. 
Oh, it's a beautiful witness. And, and really, we could hope for no more yeah. than, yeah. than, well, really, than to make Jesus smile, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, right? To feel yeah. like we're doing some, <laughs> some good in the world. But, but yeah. that notion of kind of having found some siblings in the work, mm. oh, may it be so. Yeah it's, yeah, it's great. It's been inspiring. Great. So when we were uh, considering who to interview for our first episode this season, someone who could uh, really help us understand today's context more deeply and who could inspire our imagination for what's possible in the church today, you said, hey, what about Brian McLaren? So what made you think of Brian? <laughs> yeah, you know, Brian is one of those people, and this this may have more to do with the way that I understand my own mental illness and health <laughs> issues, but Brian is someone I talk to a lot in my brain. <laughs> uh, after I read his books, often I have these conversations. I think, oh, he's thinking ahead in some ways. He's actually creating or helping to systematize some language around things that I'm experiencing and thinking. And when about the time he releases um, a book, there's language that helps the church or, or communities to be able then to think through ideas that are nascent and, and, and apparent, but, um, don't have a place and a flow. And so often Brian is thinking forward on those and helping and calling and summonsing really the church to think forward on those things as well. It's amazing how he can be looking around the next corner, mm. but also giving such a vivid, raw, real picture of today. Yeah, that's right. Right? Yeah. 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 So he's not like a futurist, you know, where I feel like I need to be putting foil on my head and whatever, you know, it's not that. <laughs> I mean, he's deeply rooted in the tradition of the, yeah. I mean, even in, in the the talk that we have in the today, his root systems come right out the lifeblood of the, the, the church, right? And yeah. he's calling the church, the bride of Christ to be more than what it was in the past, right? Uh-huh. I think about following Jesus on the road to Emmaus, that Jesus went um, ahead of folks. And I, I think that Jesus, ha- I think Brian has his eye on the back of Jesus's head a little further down the road. It's like, come on, <laughs> we can do this. Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting image to think about that road to Emmaus and mm-hmm. Jesus walking ahead. But but also remember that Jesus opened to the scriptures and, right. and that was a way of opening our eyes to what's mm-hmm. happening and, yeah. and who Jesus is. And, that's right. Um, and so Brian has a way about him to do that. And And one of the things that, kind of stood out to me as I just even think about that conversation that we had with him is that there's something for everybody in this conversation. Like if you're in the center of the church or you're pastoring or you're, you find yourself around the edges or, or even in this place of holy discontent with the church, you you can hear challenge, you can hear hope, you can hear possibility. That's right. And, and some of the things that he talked about, I just love is that, you know, he'll, He'll bring up these historical events within kind of both the life of the church and in science and whether that's Galileo or Ptolemy or whatever, you know, <laughs> and you think, oh, we're experiencing that same tension today, right? We can learn from some of the ways that we walk through experiences and the short-sightedness of the things that we could only see, right? right. And that right. 
part of the call of the gospel is, and I think that's why Jesus was often healing people, people's blind eyes so that they could see. Yeah. Um, always about new vision, you yeah. know, yeah. and faithfulness in that new vision. Yeah. And like so many of our wise prophetic voices, he invites us into the tension. He doesn't try mm-hmm. to resolve it. He invites us into it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Plus he talks about WrestleMania. And anytime you talk WrestleMania, <laughs> you, you got me. I mean, oh dear. Got, Here I'm we go. In. I'm in folks. <laughs> yeah. Before we get into the conversation, let me give Brian's bio. So I came to know Brian McLaren really as an author, but he, he is an author and a speaker, uh, an activist, uh, really a public theologian, uh, a former college English teacher and pastor, and he's a passion advocate for what he calls a, a new kind of Christianity, which is just and generous, working with people of all faiths for a common good. He's a faculty member at the Living School and a podcaster with Learning How to See, which is a great podcast, uh, which is also a part of the Center for Action and Contemplation. He is an Auburn Senior Fellow and is a co-host of Southern Lights. His newest books are Faith After Doubt, released in January 2021. And his next release, Do I Stay Christian, is coming out in May and can be pre-ordered now. We received early copies of Do I Stay Christian? And it was such a helpful read about religious identity, about the tension that people are really having and embodying right now, I think, within our culture. He's explored so many powerful questions that deepen and expand our understanding of what it means to be Christian today and even how to use that word and what that word means. And so we dig into his book and this conversation with him today. Great. Thanks, Matt. So let's listen to our interview with Brian McLaren. Brian, thank you for being with us. It is so good to be together. Thank you for being part of this conversation. Thanks for the invitation. I'm so looking forward to it. Great. So your last book was Faith After Doubt, and this one is Do I Stay Christian? So (laughs) you talk in the intro about how many people have turned to you and your books for wisdom and guidance and help in their process of deconstruction and reconstruction? So can you talk a little bit about your own faith journey sure. and some of the challenges of mm. your, you know, to your Christian identity along the way? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it, it really starts early for me. This is sort of, I'm sort of been involved with this without knowing it since I was a kid. I was mm. a nerdy kid, super interested in science. And I grew up in a very conservative Christian family where you were not allowed to believe in evolution. My parents were tolerant people, but our church was very, very rigid. And so I, because I loved science, I read all the books in the library about biology and plants and animals. And and it was like, (laughs) evolution's fantastic. It makes so much sense. And when my Sunday school teacher said, oh no, you have to choose. You either believe in God or evolution. A little part of my brain said, okay, you know, I'm I forget how old I was. I'm 12 years old. Six years from now, I'm out of here. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, so, when can I drive? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, it, it was very young. And then, I mean, it, it went on from there. But, but I ended up having this very kind of powerful spiritual experience uh, in my teenage years that really put me on the path. But I always was out of sync because the path that I was on was very oriented toward love. And I just always was kind of out of sync with, 
I, I was out of tune with the key that that uh, my religious community was was playing in. And then I became a, when I became a pastor, sort of to my surprise, m- many of the people who came to our church were people who had, either had never been part of uh, a church before, or maybe they'd been baptized as Catholic or Methodist or whatever as children, as infants, but hadn't been back since they were four years old. I mean, I, I heard that sort of thing so many times. So it was a, there was a good match between where they were at and where I was at. But maybe the one other thing I should say is through the years as a pastor, when people would come to visit the church for a little while and they'd make an appointment to come see me and to tell me all the things that they didn't believe and all the things that didn't make sense to them. And they'd ask me questions. And I mean, I jokingly say this, but it was true. They would leave with my best answers and I would be left with their best questions. (laughs) So my experience as a pastor didn't make my life of faith and doubt easier. In many ways, it raised bigger questions. Uh, Mm -hmm. I, I remember thinking, you know, somebody asked me some powerful question about human suffering, and I tell them the best I can, uh, what theologians call theodicy. I tell them the uh, the options and all the rest. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I hope they don't buy this. I don't. I don't think it's good enough. <laughs> you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. I hope this is the beginning of their search and not the end. Right. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. And, and that just kept me. Uh, that kept me going. Uh, you know, because mm-hmm. then I would have to grapple with my own well their questions became my questions too so it strikes me that you know at 12 or 13 or whenever that was as you were you know <clears throat> faced with the choice that you're like okay turn 18 i'm out of here and and now and you jump to the picture of you as a pastor so yeah. so clearly you didn't jump ship which is of course yeah. what this book is about it's the both and it's the struggle yeah. and what's compelling and um, and one of the images that really struck me and and um, I resonated with is you talk about this inner voice um, that you have and 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 you have a conversation <laughs> with the inner voice that you call your inner fundamentalist and I'm yes. sure that comes from your your background right. um, <laughs> but you also say it's you know it's part of your own psyche but it's part of a larger Christian authority structure yes. so mm-hmm. um, I'm interested in you know, how it shows up for you, but I'm also interested in why you, why it's important that it's part of this larger yeah, Christian structure. Yeah. Well, actually I uh, was just stuck in a hotel for a couple extra days in Dallas this uh, past week. And mm-hmm. it turns out that there was something called WrestleMania in Dallas. I think that's what it's <laughs> oh, called. <laughs> You're welcome, Brian. <laughs> I, I was told, I, yeah, right. I was told there were a hundred thousand visitors to Dallas for WrestleMania. So in my hotel, there were all of these kids, you know, children walking around with look like Halloween costumes, right? And I guess they were emulating different ones of these professional wrestlers. Lots of women walking around with kind of uh, surprising outfits. And, um, And I thought to myself, here's a group of people I know nothing about. I don't know any of these characters. I thought they're part of a community that makes them get on an airplane and fly to a different city and spend a weekend sort of see, being together and seeing the world together yeah. and, and feeling and knowing the same heroes. And, and I, I, it, I sort of felt uh, an affinity with them because I think that's why people, that's a big part of the appeal of religion as well. It gives me an instant point of contact with other people, like everybody who showed up for WrestleMania they knew that they shout and cheer for the same thing. And they know that they get the same kind of high out of the same thing. And I, 
I feel like what happens though is imagine that WrestleMania people uh, are into that for a while and then they find out that you know WrestleMania is abusing people and WrestleMania WrestleMania is involved with all kinds of financial mismanagement and WrestleMania and that you could just imagine things beginning to go sour for them with that mm-hmm. and identical things are happening to people who spent mm-hmm. who who either were brought up Christian and that's their identity or who adopt that identity later in life they get inside and there's this disillusionment that happens and and because so many people are in that place right now and i think there's there are very particular reasons why that's happening in the christian faith right now but because that's happening that really is what elicited this this book uh, for me I love the lexicon that even that you put in the front of this in terms of the way that Christian has been used and understood, you know, that was really helpful to me in the way that it's, it's imagined in various places. And so we can be using the same word and really um, operating on a whole different kind of ecosystem of the way that we understand that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, r- really, that that word Christian can mean opposite things uh, for for mm-hmm. different people. I I actually just felt this in a fresh and new way the other day. Uh, I I was reading that uh, you know the, in Eastern Orthodoxy, this would be Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox. Mm-hmm. So we can just imagine with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the tragedy that's happening there, how this causes a schism in the Rus- in the Orthodox world. And these are yes. people who sincerely believe and have been told for, you know, a, a, over a thousand years, they're the only true church. They're, they're the legitimate church. And now, um, Russian Orthodox priests are having to say, our patriarch is supporting Vladimir Putin. How can I, how can I stay, how can I stay silent about this? And, yes. and that crisis of conscience. And then uh, Orthodox around the world are saying, how can we stay in support of that kind of leader? And that, when I just read that the other day, I'm just thinking, yes, and this has been happening again and again and again in Christian history. So the word Christian at this moment means people who belong to a religion that believe everything Vladimir Putin says and support the invasion of Ukraine. And it means people who are willing to risk their life, their job, yes. their, their eternal salvation. Because if you, leave the true church it's very bad and hot consequences and uh, although less hot for orthodox than for some others but anyway uh you know it's it it takes courage to do that but that's what people are dealing with uh, on many many different levels it reminds me if i can just say i was on on a bus ride several years ago uh, for a retreat and i was seated next to a rabbi and as we were on this long bus ride, we had just a talk that I'll never forget. It was so interesting. But she said to me, Brian, there's something I don't get about you Christians. I said, what's that? Why are you so obsessed with beliefs? She yeah. said, I've never had a Jew ask me what I believe. Um, for being a Jew is, is defined by something other than beliefs. She says, I don't know how you, I don't know how you, you Christians handle that. And, and it mm. just, you realize for many people, Christianity is defined by adherence to a set of beliefs. You can be a racist, you can be a bigot, you can be <laughs> an abuser, but you're still an Orthodox Christian because of beliefs. And, and it, so it just raises this question. What does this word even mean? And by participating in one or another definitions, what am I excusing? What am I, I, I mean, this really, uh, it, it really raises the question, 
by giving people sort of a blanket of respectability and acceptance, we could be camouflaging some pretty ugly and evil stuff. And that's another reason why I think these, the, this struggle of Christian identity is so big. You know, I think about the poet Christian Wyman who talks about that often there are words that have been so wounded in the way that they're used that we have to set them aside for a while. And I'm not saying that we do that with Christianity, but I do think that that word has been deeply wounded in the presence of so many of the folks that we long to connect with. And so that Christianity is now and has been probably since, you know, the Enlightenment at least, a believing system, not a belonging system. Yeah. That's right. Um, That's right. That 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 word needs um, it needs it needs to be resurrected in a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. It's what will happen to the word. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't yeah. know. And what will happen to the yeah. institutions associated with it? I knew I was a lot clearer on that ten years ago than I am now. Mm-hmm. But the the thing I want to the reason I. Obviously, I wrote this book primarily for people who are thinking about leaving and trying to decide whether they should, or maybe people who've left and and realizing you can leave, but in a sense, Christianity doesn't leave you because it's in the air we breathe and it's deeply embedded in our own psyche if we're brought up that way. So I want to help those people, but also the people who are just happily Christian, I'm really hoping some of them will read it so they at least understand what the problem is for the rest of us. And uh, so they don't just so, you know, they, they are dismissive of the real moral quandary that people have. I, I'll never forget when I was a pastor, this woman visited our church and she and I were talking and it, it suddenly dawned on me that the idea of becoming a Christian terrified her because she said, I'm a bad person already. I've got a lot of problems already. I just think I'll be much worse if I become judgmental too. <laughs> wow. Wow! Ouch. How did you do that to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was yeah. absolutely sincere, and it, she just right, realized yeah. to belong to this group, there have to be a group of people that I'm against. You know, a list yeah. a list of people yeah. I'm against, and I'm a bad enough person now. If I have to be against all these other people, what will that make me? <laughs> right, right. So one of the ways that you talk about Christianity is you you say there's kind of an old way of being Christian and that through your own learning and experiences, you've realized that the old way is no longer an option for you. And so yes. can you talk a minute about what what it is to be a new kind of Christian? Mm. So there's so many levels to this, um, Lisa, and I guess a good place to start would be to say the Christian faith took shape at the very beginning in the ancient world when everyone believed that the earth was in the center of the universe and the moon and the planets and the stars moved around the earth. And in fact, from the Greek philosopher Ptolemy, there was a, or Ptolemy, there was a, a very concrete model or very clear model of 10 concentric crystal spheres. And this was deeply held. And then you know, fast forward 1500 years and first Copernicus and then Galileo basically raised their hand and say, we'd like to make a slight adjustment in your model of the universe. And, and they thought that what they did was radical and it got, uh, and, and Copernicus <laughs> and Galileo were, uh, were vilified by Martin Luther, by John Calvin, um, and by, you know, the Catholic church before them. And, and you imagine that that was just the beginning. And then mm. comes in the last 500 years, just the way our vision of the world has changed. And I guess one way to describe the problem 
is to say that uh, whatever the heart or essence or magic or deepest vision that we call the gospel, the message of the Christian faith, has been embedded, it was always embedded in a cultural context. And it's very hard for us to figure out, is there an essence that can be disembedded from that context and re-engaged with our own context? And one of our problems is that an awful lot of our institutions and systems have a defensive and what we might call inherently conservative, if not regressive mindset that says, no, it cannot happen, or it's so dangerous. Our greatest danger is that we could go down the slippery slope, which always preserves the assumption that you're starting at the top of the slope. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and what a new kind of Christian, uh, what, when I use that phrase, a new kind of Christian, what my friend Richard Rohr calls alternative orthodoxy, what this involves is saying, listen, what if what Jesus started was he, what if he meant it when he said, this is like a little seed and it's going to grow? What if he meant it when he said to his disciples, look, there's a lot more I need to teach you. I, you, you don't have it all yet, but not by a long shot. You're not ready for it, but you know, the spirit will teach you as you're ready. What if he wasn't saying, I'm leaving you and you're now at the top of the mountain? But if he was saying, you've taken three steps up the mountain and you need to climb. It's a very different way of understanding things. And so mm. in some ways, the key, the, one of the deepest shifts is to say, we didn't start great and suddenly and gradually got worse. We started where we were and we've continued to try to grapple and grow and mature and three steps forward, two steps back and so on. Does that, does that answer your question, Lisa? Yeah. Mm. And it says a lot about the, the sort of I want to call it the theological task or whatever of what it yes, means yeah. to be Christian to be a person of faith is not to have learned all the correct belief systems and who's in and who's out and all the doctrines and, and whatever mm -hmm. and get it all perfect, but rather to understand that our, our constant task is to be curious and to learn mm -hmm. and to listen to what the Holy Spirit is doing around us and saying, and, and that's a very different posture. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I'm hearing. And yes, yes, yes. What in fact, describing when you say that a, a metaphor comes to mind, if we were to imagine, you know, that we, and I imagine we do all agree that Albert Einstein was a brilliant scientist. And we said, we want to be followers of Albert Einstein. That doesn't mean that we spend the rest of our lives studying again and again Albert Einstein's experiments and getting together to say, hey, let's do this one. Let's repeat this experiment and prove that he was right. Uh, because in so doing, we would be imitating Albert Einstein's words and we would be betraying and violating his whole life, which was asking the next question, solving the, the next problem, being willing to admit that he was wrong about something that he was sure of before. When you say, I want to follow Albert Albert Einstein, you're following in his trajectory. You're following in his path. Yeah. You're, you're following in the practices that he lived by and the values live, he lived by. Yeah. And I think that's part of the thing that we're grappling with now because very mm. few people would ever think that being a Christian means following mm. Jesus in that way. Yeah. And there are all kinds of reasons, and we don't even need to blame anybody or get mad at anybody. But I just think we have to acknowledge that there's a whole lot of people showing up at Roman Catholic masses and Methodist churches and, you know, Seventh-day Adventists and all kinds of people showing up at all kinds of buildings this weekend 
and what Christianity is for them is not what we just, uh, what I was just describing. Yeah. That's right. I, I wonder if a part of that is the kind of Christianity I grew up in was really concerned about certainty. Yes. Making sure that, that it, my life is secure in these certain kind of, yes. um, uh, unmovable tenets yes. and, and values and, and beliefs. And what I'm, um, seeing you summonsing along with, um, other folks, um, that are, that are helping to articulate this new landscape yeah. is really an openness to more mystery. Yes. Um, and, and so I think where, where the old kind of Christianity secures the new kind that we're being summoned to is to an openness towards more mystery, which is then another way of holding uh, paradox, another way of holding pain and suffering, another way of holding, yeah. I don't know. Yes. Um, you know, it's a oh my gosh. Capacity. So well said, Matt. Um, in fact, it brings me back to that bus ride with the rabbi because I remember something else she said, exactly what you just said. She said to me, Another thing I don't get about you Christians, she said, you all argue about who has the right interpretation of the Bible like there's only one right one. And she said, when you get 10 rabbis together, we have 12 opinions. And she said, yeah. we would never, we think it would be an insult to, to the text of the Torah to think it only has one meaning. She said, for us, what makes it precious is that it's a bottomless well of meaning. Isn't that a beautiful yeah. phrase? Yes. And, and mystery isn't doesn't mean we shut off our brain so that we won't think about something. What mystery means is the more we think about it, the more there is that goes beyond our current understanding, uh, right. a bottomless well. And and you think, Matt, when you say that, I, I think. Why do so many, why did so many of us believe that? And why do millions of people today have that same desire for certainty? I mean, yes. about God of all things, you know. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, uh, so, but, but the reason many people believe that is because their authority figures told them so. And their authority yeah. figures said to them with confidence and with certainty and uh, in their own voice, they said, you can know for certain this and this and this and this. And yeah. little kids growing up see the preacher say that and they say, okay, but imagine if that, imagine if that preacher, instead of saying that to children, the preacher got up and with equal confidence and with equal passion and sincerity said, you're always going to think that you know something and then you're going to find out there's more to know because yeah. life is full of mystery and full of depth. And there's always more going on than you can ever fully grasp. And so you, we need to stay humble and we need to stay curious. So mm. certainty could, has, is being sold by our, a lot of our current leaders. They could be yes. selling curiosity. Uh, mm. and, and, that's, yeah. and that doesn't involve violating any creeds or breaking any laws. You know, that's... Uh, <laughs> right, right. So I, I want to take this conversation kind of to a place where we live often, and, and I think mm. it's, it's related here, and that is the relationship between, you know, the institutions that give structure and form to our belief systems and to our practices and our values and those sorts of things, and the movement of the spirit that is, that is emerging in kind of new forms of what it means yeah. to be the church, right? So you've got the institutions, you've got the movements. You talk about this some, yes. again, in, in your book. So here's where I want to go with this. Can you talk with us a little bit about what the role 
of leaders of institutions is yeah. right now in this season of emergence. And what's the role of the spiritual entrepreneurs who are part yeah. of the movement, right? Oh yeah. Such a good, uh, such a, an important way to frame that question. So look, if you're leading an institution right now, you know, the institution is in decline. You know, the institution is under stress. You know, the institution is facing schism in many cases. It's very easy. Here's what I would say. The greatest temptation if you're leading an institution is that you spend your one, as Mary Oliver says, your one wild and precious life <laughs> micromanaging the decline of the institution that pays your mm. salary. I, I had a Lutheran pastor say to me, uh, he's, after reading uh, a, a book I wrote called The Great Spiritual Migration, he said, Brian, you're way too optimistic. He said, we Lutherans are going to spend our last breath micromanaging our own decline. Mm -hmm. And and it's sad, but I think that, that and what people don't realize uh, who don't lead institutions is a declining institution is very demanding. It's a very tough job to work with a declining institution. Yes. And, and I think you can make an analogy. You know, I, 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 the last seven years of my parents' lives, they were descending into dementia and it became a bigger and bigger first, a, their whole, every waking moment was of their own time was spent surviving. And then more and more of my life. And that spread to my uh, other family members to, to just help keep them afloat. And I, I don't, I, I'm not minimizing that it's when you care about people, that's good work. But here's the problem. If all of the energy, especially of our, of our most creative people is sucked into micromanaging decline, then we've not, we've wasted uh, an awful lot of, of value. So what I would say is that uh, this is, I'm going to say this as if it's easy. It actually is possible. It's not easy, but it's possible. And that would be if you're managing an institution, figure out the least amount of energy you need to manage the institution and don't put in any extra time or energy. Do what's necessary. If, if it's declining, do what's necessary. If it's sort of stable, do what's necessary. But then sequester some percentage of your time, half a day a week, a day a week, two days a week, and invest that time in things, in the kinds of things that the entrepreneurs are doing. What I would mm. say is the people who lead institutions learn by imitation. And, and so they need to look at some entrepreneurs who are trying some mm. fresh and different things. So then that leads me to what I'd say to the entrepreneurs. And again, this is easy to say, but, I, but this is how I spent my life. You know? This is what we ask you to do too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would say to the entrepreneurs, I would say, don't imitate, innovate. I would say to the entrepreneurs, get the most distance you can from having anybody who's going to suck out some of your energy, you know, uh, you might have to do a little bit of that kind of thing, but try to make it, you know, a tiny percentage so that your time and effort can be spent in the innovation that's needed. And what you're going to do is you're going to go from failure to failure uh, on your way to success. You're going to go to failure to failure. Be and I'll, at least I'll speak for myself. When I first started in this work many, many years ago, I thought that if we could tweak these two or three things, everything would be great. Yeah. Tweak those two or three things, it wasn't great. Oh, shoot, we've got to go a level deeper. Oh, we've got to go a level deeper. And so part of what I want to say to the innovators is do not assume you, you'll get the last detail right and everything will fall in place, but rather assume that you're involved in a project of 
excavating down to get to the deepest areas where we need change. And that's one of the things I, I feel best about this new book is I, I hope that this was meaningful to you as you read, but like, I think we have to talk about what we mean when we say the word God. Uh, and I, I think if we think that having cooler music or lighter, more agile structure is going to solve our problem without ever getting honest about the problems that are imported whenever the word God or Jesus are used, we're, we're not going to get as deep as we need to. So I, anyway, that's a bit of a rant, but I, I hope that that's helpful. Beautiful. Rant on, rant on, brother. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about, Matt. And, and, and I think one of the other things I would say is that whether you're working in an institution trying to to sequester more of your time and energy to bring about needed change, or whether you're an innovator, you desperately need two or three friends who care about you. And uh, one of my one of my mentors said, "We need non-utilitarian relationships, not somebody who can fire you or hire you or give you a raise or you know writes a bad report, but somebody mm. who likes you." and sees your heart and sees your soul and cares about you and wants, you know, is, is a friend, is, is a friend. Mm-hmm. And, and when we have two or three friends like that, then we can learn to be friends to ourselves uh, in a better way too. Mm-hmm. All these things are built around that dynamic, I think. The way forward in that is really figuring out how in some ways that even the folks that are um, in the institutions and the innovators, how they have space to talk about what they're seeing and what they're discovering because in some ways they're siblings. We need each other. <laughs> exactly. Are, you the, know? the innovators create the innovations that the institutional people imitate because when right. you have a big organization, you can't risk everything. Uh, you have yeah. too much on the line, but you, yeah. you can watch what's working somewhere else and, and, yeah, and, and try right. But, but uh, I should also say the other question I'd encourage folks to take really seriously is uh, I can propose it as sort of a, uh, I can give an example for folks who are working for the well-being of the church and the Christian faith. I'd say to, I'd ask this question, would you be willing to have the Christian faith get back on a growth track again if it doesn't resolve its inherent white supremacy. Would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with it not caring about full equality for men and women? Uh, would, would you be okay with it if it continues to stigmatize people who don't fit into certain kind of norms? Would you be okay with it if it continues to destroy the earth? by never really addressing our ecological problem. And and I think any honest person would say, yeah, why would I try to keep this? Why would I try to make this thing stronger if it doesn't do those things? And that's where we have to get down to saying inherent to understanding of gospel and Jesus and God is not just, well, it, it's caring for the earth and caring for your neighbor yeah. with no exceptions and so on. Yeah. That's that's the nut of that, isn't it? That um, it's that tension that says, "Do I want to secure my place in the world, or do I want to watch the world be transformed and me a, be a part of that?" Yeah. And most of us, I wonder, would say, "Actually, I kind of want to secure my place in the world." Yeah, you know, and that's the the often the the cause of Christianity institutionalism has sold us a program again of certainty and yeah. and se- security. Well, we're being called out into an adventure. Yes, that's, that's yeah. right. And you know, this really is a big part of why I felt uh, this book needed to happen. 
because uh, and I think people will be surprised that the book is not a, a, an apologetic of why you should stay Christian. It it really isn't. It's not telling people to give up either necessarily. But I guess part of what I want people, what I want Christian leaders to realize that until this community is really worth joining, I hope people won't join it. <laughs> it. It has to become worth joining and staying in, and that's up to all of us. Beautiful. I, cool. <laughs> I I so appreciate you, Brian. You have um, challenged us and reminded us that we're not in this alone, and and that is just really important. So thank you, thank you for being pleasure, with us. and thanks for it. the good work you're doing to help people have these needed conversations. And uh, so so grateful for your good work. Thanks. Igniting Imagination is a production of the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.